You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and in today's episode, we have UFC Vegas 44 or UFC Fight Night 199 font versus Aldo preview predictions and analysis. In the main event bout, in the main event of the evening, you've got the number four ranked Bantamweight coming off of a decision victory over the former champion in Cody No Love Garbrandt. That is Rob Font. He comes into this fight with a record of 19 victories, four defeats. Going up against the number five ranked Jose Aldo Jr. Coming off of two back-to-back wins over Marlon Chito Vera and Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz. Coming into this fight with a record of 30 victories and only seven defeats. Then in the co-main event, you have two of the best strikers in the world and two of the best strikers in the UFC, without a doubt, going to battle. Former training partners, former striking coaches. In the lightweight division, you've got the number 12 ranked Brad Quake Riddell fighting out of city kickboxing with a record of 10 victories and one defeat. And on the opposite side, you've got the number 14 ranked Rafael Adaman Fiziev who is a former striking coach at Tiger Muay Thai as well, and comes into this fight with a record of 10 victories and one defeat, just like his opponent. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody, we are back. We are ready. We are locked and loaded. There's going to be two podcast episodes out today. One with UFC Vegas 44 predictions and one with a special guest and a review of an old school pay-per-view Survivor Series 1998. So be on the lookout for that coming later in the night. But to start us off, let's break down and discuss UFC Vegas 44 or UFC Fight Night 199. Rob Font versus Jose Aldo. Five rounds in the UFC's bantamweight division, number four versus number five. The winner of this fight more than likely would line themselves up for either a title shot, possibly a showdown with Dominic Cruz, or another big fight possibly against TJ Dillashaw in the near future. It all depends how the fight plays out. Um, And then in the co-main event, like we said, you've got two of the best strikers in all of the UFC and two of the best strikers on the planet and definitely some of the best strikers in that lightweight division with former training partners, former striking coaches, I believe, Fazeev was a striking coach for Brad Riddell, and they definitely were training partners out at Tiger Muay Thai in Thailand. That is the number 12 ranked Brad Quake Riddell comes into this fight 10 and 1. And then the number 14 ranked Rafael Adaman Fiziev, who comes in to this fight with the identical record of 10 victories and one defeat. Whoever wins this fight is definitely going to break into that top 10. And it's just a few short wins away from a potential number one contender bout in that 155 pound division. But uh, we'll obviously get to that fight when we get, you know, get down the card. You've also got a light heavyweight bout between ranked contenders with Jimmy the Brute Crew going up against Jamal Sweet Dreams Hill, number 13 versus number 14. And then you've got Brendan Allen versus the UFC newcomer with who just got a big win in his UFC debut against Phil Hawes and Chris the Action Man Curtis. That is what is going to open up the main card. And then we are also going to discuss one fight on the prelims, which is actually what we're going to start with right now. Let me just pull up the UFC stats really quick because I like to have those up when we're discussing and breaking down the fight. So give me one second and we will pull it up. Here we go. Let's see. Events. Here we go. And then we'll rock over to the prelims, and we got it. Okay, so 
um, flyweight bout between Manelkop and Zolgas Zumagulov. Now you look at this fight, and this is a great fight in the flyweight division. Um, 125 pounds. These guys are both big prospects in that division. Manel Kopp, obviously a former champion in another organization. I believe he was a champion in Ryzen. And then you've got Zolgas Zumagulov, who is also a fantastic prospect. Probably not as technical and as clean of a fighter as Manel Kopp, but there's definitely areas where he can take advantage in this fight. And he comes into this fight with a record of 14 victories and five defeats. So 16 and six for Starboy Manel Kopp, and then 14 and five for Zolgas Zumagulov. So, I mean, I guess we'll go down with the stats. You know, Manel Kopp's coming off of that first round flying knee knockout against Ode Osborne. Um, we finally got to see what Manel Kopp was known for. You know, Kopp was known for not being a notoriously fast starter. He's he's a slow starter. He likes to use a lot of lateral movement. He likes to switch his stance a lot, but he does primarily fight out of that southpaw stance. You know, he's a lot of forward movement, switching stances, you know, pivoting and angling, using that lateral movement, kind of being a defensive fighter for the first, you know, half of the fight. First round, he kind of likes to make his reads figure you out. And then when he gets you trapped or he gets you, you know, set up in a position, maybe it's outside foot. If you're orthodox and he's southpaw, maybe it's when he's got you backed up against the cage. That's when he likes to let his volume go. That's when he likes to let his hands go. And when he lets those, that striking go, it's ba 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 You know, he's got quick hands. He's got power in his hands. He's a quick technical fighter. When you look at a guy like Zolgas Zumagulov, um, you know, if we pull up his last fight, Let's see. We can pull it up right here. He had a first-round submission victory over Jerome Rivera. That was back at UFC 264, uh, Poirier versus McGregor 3. But he was kind of getting pieced up early in the first round, you know, for the first minute, minute and a half with Jerome Rivera. Rivera was catching him on the feet. He was countering him as he was stepping in, landing the one-twos, landing the combinations because with Zolgasu Magulov, he's so wild. He's so, every shot he throws is a hundred percent power. There's really no feeling out process with Zalgas. It's, it's walk forward, kind of maybe use a little bit of a pivot, maybe use a little bit of a sidestep. He does like to move laterally a little bit, move in and out, but then he'll just wing his overhands, wing those hooks, wing those uppercuts. And he's fast. He's quick. You know, if they land on your chin, he's going to be throwing a hundred percent power. It could hurt just about anybody at 125 pounds, but he's a reckless wild man in that cage. And with a guy who's technical and a guy who likes to really let the fight play out and really feel the fight out on the feet and make his reads and then throw his combinations and then set you up for a finishing blow, that is a recipe for disaster for Zuma Gulov. Now, it's also if it goes to decision, you know, will the volume and the activity of Zuma Gulov steal the fight for him if Manel Kopp, you know, turns it on early and starts landing his power shots like he did against Mateus Nicolau. You look at the fight with Cop and Nicolau, and, you know, early on, the first round and a half, two rounds, um, Nicolau was, he used his wrestling. He was able to outgrapple Manel Cop. He was able to land strikes on the feet. And Manel just was kind of trying to feel him out, make the reads. But he took so long to make the reads, and he took so long to get going and get comfortable that that fight slipped away from him. I know a lot of people believe that he should have won that fight and won that decision against Mateus Nicolau. Um, it's a possibility, you know, I, I wouldn't have been mad if they gave the decision to Manel Kopp, but I do think that, um, you know, Mateus Nicolau did do enough to steal that fight. So 
now we've got Manel Cop. He got the finish in the UFC. You know, he got that huge flying knee knockout against Oday Osborne, who was also a prospect, but not as highly touted as either of these two individuals. Um, and, you know, we've got this Saul Gasuma Gulaf. You know, against Jerome Rivera, he was able to tie him up in a front choke or a guillotine, but he locked it up like a rear naked choke. You know, hand on the bicep, other hand on the back of the head or the back or the back in this in this case because it was a guillotine or a front choke. And he locked it up and he got the submission. And once he locked it up, I mean, the fight was basically over. Um, you got to watch out for the submissions of Zuma Gulov. You know, Zuma Gulov is definitely probably the more well-rounded fighter. I think we might see him look to use a lot of his grappling, look to tie Manel Kopp up against the cage, land some knees, land some punches, um, and, tie, and look to get him to the ground to work his jiu-jitsu. I do think if he gets a hold of the neck of Manel Kopp, it could be a short night. You know, and, and it could be a submission victory. I think that Zolgas Zumagulov is either going to win this fight based off of activity throughout the three rounds because it doesn't seem like he slows down, or he's going to end up catching Manel Cop in a submission and getting a, and getting the tap there. But to be honest, I think I'm leaning more towards Starboy here. I think that Manel Cop is going to have a lot of counter opportunities against a guy like Zuma Gulov, who doesn't have great defense. Yes, he does move his head. Yes, he can get his head off the center line. He does use a little bit of pivots and quarter turns, but he's there to be hit. And, you know, he's, he's he gets hit a lot. Against Rivera, he was getting pieced up early in that round. He was getting countered on all of those wide shots. And I think that this fight is kind of tailor-made for a guy like Manel Cop, I think that he's going to land, try to throw those wild looping hooks and overhands and uppercuts. And Manel Cop's just going to time it, step to the outside, and land the straight left hand, land the right hook, land the combination. I think we're going to see him look to land some flying knees, but he's going to set it up. Possibly a switch stance, you know, switch stance, move back, switch stance to orthodox, throw the flying knee, switch stance, step back and switch, you know, circle and pivot and switch stances. And I think he's going to catch. Zolgasuma Gulov on the chin. I think he's going to be there for these counter opportunities. Um, and I think we're going to actually get a finish here from Manel Kopp. Um, Zuma Gulov has not been that impressive in the UFC. He hasn't had too much success. Um, I believe maybe he has one win, two losses in the UFC. I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me on the wins and losses. But I know he definitely hasn't lived up to the hype 100%. But he did in his last fight, but he had to go through a lot of fire to get to that finish. But I think he's going to be open for the counter opportunities. I think Manel Kopp being the more patient fighter, he's going to be able to pick his shots. He's going to be able to find those counters. He's going to be able to land on the chin of Zuma Gulov. I think that throughout the fight, you know, I think it'll go past the first round. It'll go into that second round. And I think late in the second round, Kopp's going to land that straight left. He's going to land a combination. He's going to hurt Zuma Gulov. He's going to drop him. He's going to jump on him and get the TKO. So I'm actually going to go with a second round TKO finish for Starboy Manel Cop here and uh, have him improve to 17 and 6 overall against Zolmas Zolgas Zumagulov. All right. Now we move to the main card and we're going to start off in the middleweight division. This is definitely one of the more interesting fights on this card. And I just want to say I'm not breaking down um, Leonardo Santos versus or Leandro Santos, yeah, Leonardo Santos versus Clay Guida. Um, I just didn't really want to spend a whole lot of time on that fight, and I think that's kind of a fight where Santos is just going to dominate. I think he's way better on the feet. I think he's got good enough grappling to, to halt the wrestling of a Clay Guida. I think he's going to be able to piece him up on the feet and probably get an early finish. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a first-round finish for Leonardo Santos, so there's my quick breakdown on that fight. But let's get back to what we came here to talk about, and it's the first fight on the main card in the middleweight division. You've got a man coming off of a 
probably one of the most impressive performances of his career in that decision victory against a highly, highly touted prospect out of Extreme Couture in Las Vegas in um, Punahele Soriano. That's Brendan Allen Allen. He looked phenomenal against Punahele. He, he took some big power shots early on, but he was able to use that orthodox stance, use his footwork, you know, step to the outside, get that outside foot, land those beautiful body kicks, land the straight shots to the body. And that right body kick was just money for him throughout the entirety of that fight. And his boxing looked good too. It was clean. It was crisp. Like I said, he was able to take those punches from Punahele and continue to move forward. And he really impressed me because I thought that was a fight where we've seen the boxing, the power punches, and, you know, people who have clean technical striking. Brendan Allen has never been a good striker. And anybody who's ever touched him up on the feet, he's had to resort to his grappling. And if you tag him on the chin, you can knock him out. You saw it against Sean Strickland. I picked Sean Strickland in that fight. I knew that the defense and the, the way that Strickland sets up his offense was going to be hard for Allen to come through, and he wasn't able to. He was he got hit with clean shot after clean shot after clean shot and eventually got dropped and got, got TKO'd. And then you look at the fight even against Carl Roberson where he was getting pieced up on the feet. He was getting landed on a lot in that southpaw stance. He was landing the straight left, landing the right hook, trying to land head kicks. Roberson was piecing him up. And then they went into the grappling exchanges. Roberson made a mistake, went for a heel hook and, um, or I'm sorry, went for a, a heel hook or I think it was a, um, I think it might've been a toe hold. And then Brendan Allen countered it with his own heel hook because you can't leave your leg out there. You guys are both in basically a 50, 50 position. He locked up that heel hook and basically ripped apart the knee of Carl Roberson. And that was a big win for Brendan Allen. So a win over Carl Roberson, a win over, um, Punahele Soriano. He was originally supposed to be fighting Brad Tavares on this card and that didn't go through. So he's going up against Chris action man, Curtis, you know, Chris Curtis is new to the UFC. He only has one fight in the UFC. Um, his debut came against Phil Hawes. He stepped in on short notice and, um, he was getting pieced up early in that fight. You know, um, uh, what was I going to say? I'm sorry. I had a brain fart right there. Okay. So, you know, Phil Hawes looked the best he's ever looked training out of Sanford MMA. He looked the best he's ever looked on looked on the feet. You know, the, the front kick to the body, the teep kicks, the front snap kicks, you know, the one-twos, the crisp combinations, landing the body kick over and over and using that lateral movement, stepping to the outside of the southpaw of the lead foot on the southpaw and Chris Curtis. He was able to land a lot of those shots, and it looked like he was going to cruise his way to either a dominant decision or a TKO. But you look at that fight, and Chris Curtis has kind of a Philly shell boxing style of defense. You know, we've seen it from some guys, but Chris Curtis uses it a little bit differently. You know, it's the one high hand. The other hand's kind of protecting with the shoulder. Sometimes he'll stick the hand up. He'll cover, and he'll look to counter. He's got a beautiful overhand left. And the way he was able to dip, throw that left hand, and roll underneath on Phil Hawes. He timed it absolutely perfectly. He timed him stepping in. He waited for his opportunity, weathered the storm. He had landed that left hand earlier in the fight, and he knew that that was going to be open throughout the throughout the fight. You know, being able to step to the outside, avoid any of the power shots of Phil Hawes, and then come over the top as he goes to circle towards that left hand, and boom, land on the chin. And it was he knew it was going to hurt him because it landed earlier in the fight. And a few times it had come very, very close. And I know, I believe this was a first round finish. Like I know that he was dominating Curtis up to that point, but Chris Curtis, even though he's a new a UFC newcomer, you know, action man is not new to the game of MMA. He's 27 and eight overall. Brendan Allen 
has 21 fights. Chris Curtis has 35. So it's a, it's a big, it's a little bit of an experience advantage for Chris Curtis, but the competition level that is definitely on the side of Brendan Allen. I do think that since we've, and you know, you have to think of this and I'm sorry that I kind of, you know, cut myself off mid sentence, but it's important. So, you know, Chris Curtis is one of his corner men and his coaches is Sean Strickland. Sean Strickland fought Brendan Allen. Sean Strickland is can fight in that southpaw stance. Sean Strickland knew the striking combinations that were hurting Brendan Allen, and he finished them off. Chris Curtis has power. He is a little bit of a slow starter, which can play into some of the game of Brendan Allen early in the fight. And but having that corner man and being you know coached by a man who fought Brendan Allen and beat him in a fight that a lot of people did not believe Sean Strickland was going to win is a big big. Um, that's a big upside for Chris Curtis in this fight. You know, you're getting coached by Sean Strickland. Strickland knows what it's like to fight Brendan Allen. Strickland knows that he finished him so he can give you some good advice. You know, Brendan Allen training out of Sanford MMA where all of the best guys go now. He also trains with Phil Hawes. So Brendan Allen training with Phil Hawes, he knows what Chris Curtis is open for. He knows the strikes that Chris Curtis is open for. He knows that those long range teep kicks, those body kicks, the long one twos, and just the overall kicking game is what Chris Curtis didn't really have a, a, a successful time defending early in that fight. And if Brendan Allen is able to stay away from that left hand, circle to the outside of the lead right foot of Chris Curtis, he's going to be able to land those, that right body kick over and over. It was money against Punahele Soriano. It's going to be money here against Chris Curtis. It's both southpaws, both have the open lane for the power body kick from the rear side. He's going to be open. The right kick to the body is going to be money for Brendan Allen. The one twos up top and his ability to kind of fall. He's not fallen in love with the striking. And I hope that's something we don't see here. If Brendan Allen comes into this fight and is only thinking about staying on the feet and striking, he's going to have a problem and he's probably going to get finished by Chris Curtis. Chris Curtis can knock out Brendan Allen in this fight 100%. I would not be surprised. But I do think that Brendan Allen knows when he's having success on the feet with the striking. He knew he was having a lot of success against Punahele with that right body kick, with those teeps to the body, with the striking combinations up top and his lateral movement. But he also knows that Chris Curtis is experienced. Chris Curtis knows how to set traps to land that overhand left, land that right hook, direct you into that power overhand. He knows that he's training with Sean Strickland, who did beat Brennan Allen. I think we're going to see him start on the feet and then immediately shoot a takedown, look to get the body lock, get the outside trip, get a double leg takedown, and we're going to See Brendan Allen excel in the grappling here. Um, I think we're going to see him take Chris Curtis down. I think early on the first minute, minute and a, the first minute and a half to two and a half minutes of the first round, it's going to be telling because that's where Chris Curtis is going to get that finish. He's going to try to land that left hand, and if he lands on the chin of Brendan Allen, man, it could be over, and it doesn't have to take very long. But Honestly, I think that uh, Brendan Allen is going to resort to his grappling. I think he's going to make Chris Curtis believe he's going to stay on the feet for the majority of this fight, and he's going to want to be in a striking battle. And once Chris Curtis uncorks that left hand or looks to step in, that's when Allen's going to level change, shoot, get the takedown, and work from the top position, and eventually look to take the back of Chris Curtis, lock up the rear naked choke, and get the tap. I see a rear naked choke finish here for Brendan Allen or a ground and pound TKO, but I definitely think once he gets the takedown, once he's in that top position, once he's able to use his fantastic Brazilian jiu-jitsu and his grappling, um, that's where he's going to take over and that's where he's going to dominate Chris Curtis. So I think there's going to be a scary moment or two 
you know, in the first two and a half minutes of that first round. But Brendan Allen's going to resort to the grappling. He's going to get on the back of Chris Curtis. He's going to land some ground and pound shots. And um, I think he's going to be able to find the neck and lock up the rear naked choke submission. So my pick is Brendan all in Allen to defeat Chris Curtis via a I'll, I'll give Chris Curtis the benefit of the doubt, uh, a second round rear naked choke submission. I wouldn't bet on this fight. I would not be confident in this pick overall because I do think that due to the training partner of Chris Curtis, you know, and Sean Strickland and his ability to land that left hand and Brendan Allen's, you know, he's getting better in the striking. He's getting better at the defense, but you know, he's still open for those shots and he has been throughout the entirety of his career when he fights good strikers. Um, I would not be surprised if Chris Curtis pulls the upset off here, but I'm going to go with Brendan Allen. All right. Now let's move to the next fight on the main card in the light heavyweight division, a battle of very, you know, promising young prospects. And ranked contenders, albeit, in the light heavyweight division. You've got the number 13 ranked Jimmy the Brute Crute coming into this fight with a record of 12 victories and two defeats. Coming off of a, I guess you'd call it a, a second round TKO loss to Anthony Lionheart Smith. But he had his moments and he looked decent in that fight. Um, come again, He's going against the number 14 ranked Jamal Sweet Dreams Hill. Coming into this fight with a record of eight victories and one defeat. Coming off of a gruesome arm-breaking armbar submission against the submission ace and Paul Craig in his last fight. Um, this is a great fight and a great matchup and really good matchmaking here in the light heavyweight division. You know, Crute versus Hill, um, both men coming off a loss. The only bad thing is whoever loses this fight is now going to be on a two-fight losing streak. And I know that a lot of people have a lot of... Uh, praise and a lot of hopes and really high hopes for both of these guys, you know, with Crute and Hill. And, you know, I think the, the praise and everything is a little bit more on the side of Crute than it is Hill, but Hill has some really, really good uh, weapons. He's a very tall, long rangy fighter, um, very good on the feet. And he's very smart in the way that he, you know, sets up his striking combinations is Jamal Hill. You know, he's going to be fighting an orthodox fighter in Jimmy Crute, who is, you know, kind of bread and butter basics when it comes to being on the feet. But, you know, basics is what wins world championships. So I don't really like to see people who discredit people's basic striking game, um, unless it's against like a phenomenal striker who's really good at the basics as well, but can also do flashy things or, or set up things a little bit better then okay, that's different. But, you know, Jimmy Crude has a really solid right low kick. And, and based off the fact that he's fighting a southpaw in Jamal Hill, that's going to go to the inside leg. So um, I think we're going to see Crude look to land that inside low kick a lot on the lead leg of Jamal Hill and try to piece him up with that. And, um, you know, look to set up his jab, look to use that check hook. You know, both guys are going to be looking to use the check hooks here. It's going to be less about the jabs and more about the check hooks. But, with the reach and the range of Jamal Hill, it, it's not really smart for Jimmy Crute to stand on the feet for too long, you know, because the Hill is long. Hill is rangy. Hill can land his strikes. He can pick you apart. He is open for that low kick, which is why I said I think we're going to see Crute either look to attack that inside low kick with the right leg or look to switch southpaw and go to the outside low kick, a switch outside low kick 
and um, look to direct him into either the power right hand or look to use those kicks to set up entries for the body lock or takedown attempts, whether it's a double leg or a single leg. The thing that Crute is really good at, and we saw it against Anthony Smith, is um, you know even if you're getting hurt and you you know you're you're on the defense, he can change levels in the blink of an eye and shoot that takedown. So even if Jamal Hill is it's starting to land good on the feet, he can pull back quickly, level change, shoot, and get those takedown attempts. Now, Crute or uh, Jamal Hill, like I said, he's really tall, really long, really rangy. So I think the best takedown attempts for Crute in this fight would be to look to shoot a double, work his way up to the body lock, and look to get those inside or outside trips and drag him off the fence, and then look to tie him up in the half guard, you know, using the back side control, trying to tie up the wrist, take the back, look to just tire him out in the grappling. Because in this fight, the grappling and top pressure and submission game of Jimmy Crute is I think what's going to carry, you know, a lot of success for him here on the feet. The longer it stays on the feet, Crute does have power. Crute can land on you and can knock you out. Um, he's good with the right hand. He's good with the left hook. He's got good low kicks, but I don't see him wanting to play around on the feet for too long. This is basically, in my opinion, striker versus grappler. Hill's going to be looking to use that southpaw stance to stay on the outside, land the one-twos, land the check right hook, and pivot off like he's very good at doing. He's very good at trapping you in, using that right hook to step off the center line, keep that outside foot, drag you in, direct you towards that power left hand, the one-twos, the left hooks, the front kicks to the body. He's going to be looking to keep Jimmy Crude at range and just pick him apart. And once he gets him hurt and gets him up against the cage, that's when he's going to go to jump in and try to get the finish. Like I said, the longer it stays on the feet, the more that this fight is going to play into the favor of Sweet Dreams Jamal Hill. He's a great fighter. You saw what he did to Ovin St. Peru. But, you know, a win over Ovin St. Peru, even though he fought John Jones, even though he has some good wins, you know, he's kind of over the hill. And you look at Jimmy Crute, you know, if we're not going to go off MMA math here or, you know, if we're going to use it to an extent, Jimmy Crute did submit Paul Craig. You know, that was one of his, that was his first fight in the UFC, I believe. And he was able to get the submission against a, a dangerous and phenomenal submission artist. And you saw what Paul Craig did to Jamal Hill once it got to the ground. He was able to lock him up very quickly and break his arm, basically snap his arm in two. And, you know, his arm was dangling all over the place and the fight was over. So, you know, I know we're not supposed to go off MMA math here, but I think that Crute is going to be able to time the end, the striking entries and the stepping in of Jamal Hill, find a way to take him down, whether it's an outside or inside trip or tying up the feet from the body lock and taking him down. I think he's going to, you know, work from the half guard when, when, you know, Jamal Hill looks to shrimp, get up to his feet, get up to his knees and get up to the feet. That's when Crute's going to be able to try to take the back, land the ground and pound and look to set up the submissions. Um, I think he's going to be able to lock up a Kimura here. I think he's going to look to attack the arms because of how damaged, um, you know, Jamal Hill's arm was in his last fight against Paul Craig, which wasn't that long ago. If you go over here and you look, let's see, Paul Craig last fight. It was at UFC 263. So here, hold on. Uh... We can pull this up here if I can find it. You know, so he beats Jamal Hill via TKO, you know, elbows and punches. But he basically, I mean, it wasn't a submission, but he basically submitted him. I mean, he broke his arm. He had him locked in the triangle, triangle arm bar. He cranked it. It was more of like a, uh, a kind of a reverse Americana more than an arm bar. He really got the angle on it, but his arm was dangling. He's landing those elbows 
And uh, it was a TKO. So my apologies. I said it was a finish or I mean a submission, but it wasn't. It was a TKO, but still it was the submission attempt that broke the arm of Jamal Hill. And that wasn't that long ago. That was on June 12th of 2021. So, you know, about six months ago, you know, a little a little less than six months ago, Jamal's Hill, Jamal Hill's arm was just completely broken and snapped in two and it was dangling all over the place. I think it's healed. I think he's good to go, but don't be a fool. You know, I think Crute's going to look to take take him down, use the grappling, and look to attack that's that uh, some those that submission game and look to attack those arm bars, the arm triangles, the omoplatas. You know, I think he's going to be looking to attack that arm, and I think he's going to lock up a Kimura like he did against Michael Oleksichuk, and I think he's going to get the finish, and I think he's going to get the submission. We're going to see dominance in the grappling and wrestling from Jimmy Crute. We're going to see a lot of success from Jamal Hill on the feet, but it's not going to be enough. He's not going to be able to stop the takedown, and once Crute gets him down, we're going to see just why Crute was so highly touted. That wrestling, that top game, that Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the pressure, the ground and pound, it's all going to play into factor, and um, I think we're going to get a first-round submission from Jimmy Crute here. I think Jimmy Crute gets a first round Kimura submission over Jamal Hill and um, vaults his way up to the top 11, top 10. And, uh, you know, after losing to Anthony Smith, where he had success, he took down Anthony Smith. He got him in the grappling control and he controlled the last half of that first, or, you know, the last minute for, of the first round going into that second round where the fight was eventually stopped because of the damage due to the calf kicks. But the jab was a big problem for Crute, which is why I think the long range strikes and then the striking of Jamal Hill in the range is going to be an issue. But, you know, to be able to take down Anthony Smith, to be able to level change that quickly, even after falling due to the damage on your own leg and then running in and, you know, changing levels, that was a big problem. And um, I think we're just going to see more of the grappling trouble for Jamal Hill here and a first round submission win for Jimmy Crute to improve to 13 and two. All right. All right. All right. And now we move to the co-main event of the evening, a battle in the lightweight division. We've already talked about it on the opener of this podcast. This is the people's main event. This is the best fight between two of the best strikers in the world and definitely two of the best strikers in the UFC. In the lightweight division, you've got the number 12 ranked former striking coach at City Kickboxing, training partner of Rafael Fiziev at Tiger Muay Thai in uh, Brad Quake Riddell. He comes into this fight with a record of 10 victories and one defeat. He's going up against the number 14 ranked Former striking coach of Tiger Muay Thai, a phenomenal striker in his own right, in Rafael Ataman Fiziev, who comes into this fight with an identical record of 10 victories and one defeat. Man, what a fight this is going to be. Um, this is the definition of all-out war, and I think that's what we're going to see. I think we're going to see it be a little bit more technical and a little bit more precise than people actually think because both of these guys have trained together. Both of these guys have sparred with each other. You know, they know what each other, you know, what each person, their good weapons are, what they're, what they're good at, what their weakness is, you know, when they fade, what combinations work on them. You've heard from Riddell. I believe that he hasn't trained with Fiziev too much in terms of like sparring, hitting pads, but they have worked together in the past. If you go and listen to Brad Riddell's interview on the, uh, Ariel Hawani MMA show, 
he said that he actually called Hafa. Well, he calls him Hafa, Rafael Fiziev, and uh, they had a conversation before this fight, and they wanted to make sure that, you know, due to the position of both of these guys in the rankings, you know, number 12 and number 14, um, they wanted to make sure that it was okay with each other to take this fight, and, like, if they wanted to take this fight, and I don't think they're necessarily happy about it either way because they are friends. They are former training partners. They do know each other very well, and um, if you go back and listen to my interviews with the Hickman brothers, um, George and Frank, I have two separate interviews on my podcast from a few months back. So go out and check that out because he, we, they talked, we talked about Brad Riddell. We talked about Rafael Fazeev. We talked about what they're like training together. You know, I remember I reached out to um, Frank about, or I'm sorry, I reached out to, yeah, I reached out to Frank about this fight when it got announced and, um, I know he wasn't too happy about it because obviously the, both of these guys are very close. He's very close with both of these men. And, um, you know, I can definitely see that if you, nobody would want to fight a training partner, especially if you're really good friends with them. You know, if there was a rivalry, you know, in training camp and you guys didn't really like each other, then it wouldn't really be a problem. But Rafael and Brad or uh, Riddell and Fiziev seem to really like each other. And, uh, but they know that this is kind of what they had to do. And that's what he said in that interview with Ariel Helwani, Brad Riddell, he was like, you know, that kind of know, like, this is what we have to do. We're, we're right next to each other in the rankings. We wanted to see if there was somebody else, another fight we could take so we didn't have to fight each other and we could meet each other at the top when we're in the top five, top six. But, you know, it is what it is, and we just have to get in and get it done. So we're going to get one of the highest level striking matchups you've ever seen in the UFC. I talked about this fight a long time ago saying I wanted to see it happen. I knew they were training partners, so it probably would never happen, but we wanted to see it happen. And they're both identical records, 10 and one versus 10 and one. Um, let's break down some of the stats before we get into the actual technical side of the fight. Um, you look at the reach 71 inches for quake, Brad quake, Riddell, 71 and a half inch reach for Rafael Fazeev. He's got a half inch reach advantage. You look at the height, uh, Hoffa, Rafael Fazeev is actually an inch taller at 5'8 versus 5'7 for Brad Riddell. Leg reach, I think, is going to play a little bit of a factor here, so we'll break that down and mention that too. 38-inch leg reach for Brad Riddell to 40-inch leg reach for Rafael Fazeev. The win percentages for each of these men, 50% of the wins coming by way of knockout for Brad Riddell, none by submission, and 50% by decision. So 50-50 for Brad Riddell. When it comes to Rafael Fazeev, 60% of the wins coming by way of KO, 10% coming by way of submission, and 13% coming by, or I'm sorry, 30% coming by way of decision. So a little bit more skewed and a little bit more wide for uh, Fazeev and Riddell. But if you look at the fight, it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to be a knockout or, or it's going to go to a decision. And early knockout, I would favor Rafael Fazeev, and I'll break it down and explain why. Late finish, I favor Quake Riddell, or I favor Brad Riddell, sorry, all day. Um, you look at the average fight time, 15 minutes for Riddell. He hasn't been able to get a finish yet in his UFC career. Um, 10 minutes and 6 seconds for Rafael Fazeev. He has been knocked out before. Um, he got knocked out in the UFC in one of his first fights. Let me see if I can pull it up. I think it was Magomed Mustafaev, who Brad Riddell actually fought in his career. But let me check it out. I could be wrong. see we'll pull it up um is it in this no it's not here okay let's see if we can pull it up here we go 
He, yeah, that was it. Magomed Mustafayev at UFC Fight Night 149, Overeem versus Olenek. It was in April of 2019, April 20th, 2019. He lost via spinning back kick to the head and then follow-up punches. And then after that, he got a decision over Alex White, a decision over Mark Jacasey, a KO over Hanato Moicano at UFC 256, where he looked absolutely phenomenal. And then a decision, albeit some people said questionable. I thought he definitely did enough to defeat Bobby Green. Um, at UFC 265. So he's coming off of a four-fight win streak, 4-1 four and one in the UFC, losing his debut to uh, with wins over Alex White, Mark Jacasey, Hanato Moicano, and Bobby Green. When you look at the fights for Brad Riddell, he pulled that up as well. Brad Riddell. Give me one second, and we can pull it up. Here we go. So when you look at the fights for Brad Riddell, he is currently uh, 4-0 in the UFC. He's got wins over Jamie Malarkey, Magomed Mustafayev, who is actually the man who knocked out um, Rafael Fazib with that spinning back kick, a win over Alex Da Silva, and a most recently a win over Drew Dober in a phenomenal fight, the fight of the night at UFC 263 back in June of 2000, or June of this year, I should say. So phenomenal fight against Drew Dober. Um, th this is going to be a great fight between two phenomenal strikers. When I looked to break down each of the striking games of these men, we'll start off with Rafael Fazeev. You know, Fazeev is more of a kicker than Brad Riddell is. You're going to see a lot more switch kicks. You're going to see a lot more trying to pull back and counter with kicks as Brad Riddell enters with the boxing combinations. You're going to see Fazeev try to step back and counter with the switch kick to the body. Try to land that outside low kick on the orthodox stance of uh, Riddell. We're going to see him try to chop the legs. We're going to see him try to attack the body. We're going to see a lot more of a heavy kick offense from Rafael Fazeev. Brad Riddell does kick as well, primarily to the calf and then to the body, but I think you see him add kicks on to his boxing combinations later on in the fight. He's not going to start out kicking. He's going to start out light on the feet. He's going to use a little bit of lateral movement, and he's going to try to set up the counters and try to counter with the right hand. He's going to try to land a beautiful left hook. He's got a phenomenal left hook. Um, against Drew Dober, the best weapon for Brad Riddell was that right hand. I mean, his right hand is a piston. Fazeev has a phenomenal right hand, but he's got an even better left hook. Both of these guys have great left hooks. Um, I think that's pretty evident. You saw the, the left hook to the body, right hand followed up with the left hook that Fiziev landed on Hanato Moicano, dropped him, and finished him in a brutal KO. Um, you saw that Brad Riddell is able to land that left hook a lot. He loves to use that left hook, but he likes to use a lot more fakes and feints than Rafael Fiziev. And I think the fakes and feints of Brad Riddell and the stutter steps and the, the false tells are going to really play into the mind of Rafael Fiziev. And I think that that's going to kind of be a factor where Brad Riddell might take over in the striking a little bit quicker than you may think. I'm, like I said, I'm going to be honest. If this fight ends in the first round, it's because Rafael Fiziev was too quick and too fast for Brad Riddell. That is definitely an advantage for Fiziev. Fiziev has the advantage in the kicks, you know, chaining kicks together off of the punches and the speed. 
And he's got more power as well. I think he has more power from Brad Riddell, but I think that Riddell's technique is a lot cleaner. He sets up his counters a little bit better than Fazeev does, which adds to the power of your punch when the opponent's not able to see it, when you're able to slip off and counter with the right hand. Slip and land that left hook instead of just winding up. And Fazeev doesn't wind up, so I don't want to say he winds up with his punches. They are clean, they are crisp, they are technical, but you just know he's got that pop in that shower. If he lands on the chin of Riddell, if Drew Dober was able to hurt him with a straight left hand and almost finish him, um, I think that if Fazeev lands early, you know, he's fast and he's quick, and I think the speed's going to be a problem. Riddell's going to have to get through that first round, but if it ends in the first round, it's because Fiziev or Fiziev gets the first round KO, and I don't think Riddell is going to be able to do that. If Riddell gets a finish, it's going to be later on in the fight. You know, you look at, this is basically how I see this fight going, but we're going to talk about significant strikes really quick as well, so just you get the idea of the striking matchup we're about to see. 4.75 strikes landed per minute or significant strikes landed per minute for Riddell to 5.34 for Fazeev. But, you know, that that kind of seemed to taper off in that third round against Bobby Green because he wasn't able to get Green out of there. And Green was able to use his elusive shoulder roll, the Philly shell, the, the head movement to get out of the way of a lot of those power shots. You look at the significant strike percentages, neck and neck, 53% accuracy for Riddell to 52% accuracy for Rafael Fazeev. You look at strikes absorbed per minute. This is where you kind of see where the defense is a lot better on the side of Brad Riddell. 3.18 strikes absorbed per minute for Riddell to 5.76 for Fazeev. It's almost a three-strike differential for the uh, strikes that he absorbs compared to the you know strikes absorbed for Riddell. 54% defense for Riddell on the feet compared to 50 for Fazeev. You look at the grappling, I think that this is where Brad Riddell is going to be able to take over as well. You look at the fight against Drew Dober. Even when Dober landed that left hand by getting that outside foot on the lead leg of Riddell, he was able to land that straight left. When he dropped him and hurt him or he sat him down, Riddell immediately entered in on a takedown and he pushed forward. He got the 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 Iran, you know, the Iranian position with the head in between the legs where you can push him up against the cage, seem to sit back and turn the corner. Obviously, he didn't get that, but he had his you know, Drew Dober was trying to stuff the head. He switched off to a single leg, pushed him up against the cage, worked in the body lock, and you know, used that to clear the cobweb. So if Fazeev does catch him and hurt him, I do expect Brad Riddell to look to enter into those grappling exchanges. I think he's definitely the better wrestler and the better grappler. We haven't seen a lot of grappling out of Rafael Fiziev or Fiziev, but I think that Riddell's going to be the one who's going to look to use the grappling. And if he uses the grappling early to tire out Fiziev, it's just going to make it easier for him to land those strikes and the combinations on the feet the longer the fight goes. You look at the takedowns. Average per 15-minute fight, you got a two-takedown average for Riddell compared to a .59 for Fazeev. you got a 42% takedown accuracy for Riddell to a 50% takedown accuracy for um, Fazeev. I don't really think the accuracy is that you shouldn't look too much into that when breaking down this fight. Takedown defense, 100% takedown defense for Fazeev. But I think that takedown defense is going to get broken here. I know he's got 100% takedown defense, but not a lot of people are looking to take Fazeev down. You know, he's fought some strikers in his career, people who wanted to stay on the feet in exchange with them. So that 100% takedown defense isn't as good as you may think. Yes, he's never been taken down, but he hasn't really fought anybody who's going to look to use that wrestling and use those takedowns. Riddell has a 62% takedown defense. I don't expect Fazeev to try to take Riddell down, and if he does, I don't think he's going to be successful with it. So here's what I think. The kicking game 
of Rafael Fazeev is going to be a big problem for Riddell. The switch kicks to the body, entering with the right hand, pulling back to that lead switch kick to the body. The head kicks, you know, the, the low kicks, you know, punches into kicks and kicks into punches. You know, the pulley effect of pulling that power hand back to land those kicks. You know, Fazeev has some fast kicks. His combinations are fast. He's got the speed advantage. The speed is going to be a problem for Riddell early on. I think Riddell is going to get clipped and is going to get hurt, but he's going to be able to use that wrestling. He can fall back on his wrestling when he gets hurt in the striking. Fazeev cannot fall back on wrestling when he gets hurt. If, if Riddell cracks him on the chin with that right hand, or as Fazeev steps in, he goes over the jab with the left hook, you know, I, I don't really think that, Fazeev is going to be able to resort to anything when he gets hurt on the feet besides striking. So he's just going to shell up and that's where Riddell can take over. Riddell can resort to that grappling. He can resort to takedown attempts. He can resort to getting into scrambles to try to clear the cobwebs. And that's also going to tire out Fazeev when we get into the, the second half of that second round, into the third round, towards the end of the fight. That is where the cardio and the gas tank of Brad Riddell is going to get stronger. And that is where the gas tank of Fiziev is going to weaken and deplete. And honestly, I think Riddell is either going to get a third-round TKO here um, or he's going to get a decision. I think he's going to take over in that the midway point of that second round, into that third round. His strikes are going to be a lot more there for the taking because, like we said, Fazeev moves a lot more. He's a lot more flashy on the feet, you know, switching stances. He'll step into orthodox to get an angle and step back to southpaw. So he, or he'll step into southpaw, then angle back to orthodox to kind of box the opponent in so he can set him up for that left hook to the body, set him up for that one, two left hook to the body, right hand pulled back into the lead body kick, you know, right hand in the lead body kick. He uses a lot. He'll, he'll briefly switch to Southpaw, but he's never going to strike from the opposite stance. He's just briefly switching to get that angle, give him a little bit more space. And then he'll step back to orthodox to move you towards that right hand and box you in and, you know, make you move into the power that he wants to set up. And I think that we've seen that his head movement is good early. His defense is okay, but the longer the fight goes, his defense isn't really there. His hands drop. You know, he kind of slows down on the movement, and I think that uh, that's where Riddell's going to take over. I think uh, I think later on, Riddell's going to get stronger. The right hand's going to be there. The left hook's going to be there. He's going to counter the, the fast power shots of Fiziev. And he's going to counter it. He's going to counter that switch kick to the body with the right hand. He's going to be able to counter a lot of the kicks of with his punches. I think we see from Riddell a lot. He likes to step off on an angle, put the weight on the back foot, and then fire. So he'll step away from your power, get on the back foot, boom, and then come back with the counter. That really only works, works more against the southpaw when you're in the opposite stance. But I think we're going to see Riddell look to fade off to that rear side, step off to the side, and then have come back in with the counter right hand, the left hook. His right hand is a piston. Fiziev's left hook is a piston. It's a phenomenal fight. It's one of the best fights of the year in the UFC. But I'm going with Brad Quake Riddell here. I'm going to go with a third-round TKO. I think that he was able to survive against Bobby Green because Green isn't as sharp in the striking and doesn't have as many feints and, and fakes and, and setups with his strikes. If he fades like that against Fiziev, it's going, or if he fades like that against Brad Riddell, um, that's where Riddell's going to be able to set up those punches. He's going to be able to land that left hook. He carries his power through all three rounds. He gets he gets better as the fight goes on, and he's always in there for a war. And I think that the power is going to carry on, and Fiziev isn't going to be able to move his head. He's not going to be able to be as defensive. 
in that third round, and it's going to lead him to get caught with that right hand, caught with that left hook. Um, I think he's going to hurt him with a right hand by stepping back and then stepping back in like with a pull counter, and then boom, land the left hook, open up with some punches, rip to the body with the left hook, and uh, drop him and jump on him and get the TKO. So I'm going to go with a third-round TKO victory for Brad Quake Riddell over Rafael Fiziev. All right, now let's move to the main event of the evening. A five-round battle between top five-ranked 135-pound bantamweight. So you've got the number four-ranked Rob Font, who comes into this fight with a record of 19 victories and four defeats, going up against the number five-ranked fighter on a career resurgence at 135 pounds, the former you know, 145-pound reigning defending featherweight champion, the king of Rio, Jose Aldo, who comes into this fight with a record of 30 victories and seven defeats. Number four, Rob Font versus number five, Jose Aldo. Who will win this fight and take one step closer to a 135-pound championship fight? Um, this is a great matchup, man. And it's it's really telling for the 135-pound division based on who wins this fight. If Rob Font comes in here and jabs up Aldo, and, you know, gets a dominant decision or, you know, finishes him later in the fight, he's right there for a title shot or a fight with TJ Dillashaw. If Aldo comes in and beats Rob Font and looks good, gets a finish, wins a decision, now he's got wins over Marlon Vera, Pedro Munoz, and Rob Font. So you're next for Dillashaw. I think this fight is basically whoever wins gets a fight against TJ Dillashaw. I think this is this is the fight to determine who Dillashaw's next opponent is. If not, yeah, sure, they could fight Corey Sanhagen. Yeah, they could fight uh, Peter Yan next. But I think we know that in the next fight for Peter Yan is going to be Eljamain Sterling when he's ready to make his comeback. He's going to destroy Eljamain Sterling, and then we can move on from that whole saga. But this is a fantastic fight. This is a fight where you're going to see another, just like the co-main event, you're going to see a striking battle. But it's going to be more... Uh, one-dimensional from Rob Font. Not saying he's not a one-dimensional fighter because he's not, but the game plan he's going to probably look to implement will be more one-dimensional um, on the feet compared to Aldo. I think Aldo definitely has the more Muay Thai approach, even though Font trains with Coach Jake My- Jake Mainini and uh, Arda Hadna- Arda- <laughs> I almost had the, bo- the Boston accent. See, I can't do it. Um, out of Boston, you know, Hard Knocks Muay Thai with Jake Manini, Rob Font. So, you know, I think that the person who's going to use more Muay Thai and probably look to use more of a kicking game is going to be Aldo. But, you know, he kind of fell off, you know, fell away from the kicks until that fight with Peter Yan at UFC 251 and until his last fight where he probably looked the best he's looked in years against Pedro Munoz. He was fast. He was powerful. He was, he was, you know, landing combinations at will. He was able to pivot and step off and, and use angles against Pedro Munoz and just not be there for anything he threw at him. And he'd counter one, two, hook to the body, cross, hook to the body, one, two, three, hook to the body, one uppercut, level change, uppercut, pop, 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 low kick, pop, 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 low kick, Ba boom, boom, low kick. You know, he was able to really turn it up. Ba ba ba. His combinations were fast. He had a lot of power, and he was using a great jab as well. The problem is, you don't want to get into a jab off with a guy who probably has the best jab in the UFC in Rob Font. I've said this for months. I've said this for a long time. Rob Font has one of the best jabs in the UFC. Probably the best jab. It's not. It's not. You know, telegraphed. 
It just comes out and it sticks you. Comes out and it sticks you. Comes out and it sticks you. And, you know, Aldo has one of the best jabs too. But I don't think, like I said, you don't want to get into a jab off against a guy like Rob Font. I don't think that's a good idea. If Aldo wants to win, he's going to want to slip inside the jab and counter with a low kick. Step outside of the jab and counter with a low kick. You know, slip inside the jab, rip that beautiful left hook to the body, follow up with a low kick. Jab inside the jab, left hook to the body, right low kick. You're going to want to chew up the lead leg of Rob Font if you're Aldo because he has a primarily boxing heavy stance. But if you look at his last fight against Cody Garbrandt, and if we talk about Rob for a minute, he's coming off of, I believe, a four-fight win streak in his career. Let's see. He had an injury. He he uh, tore his ACL, so he was out for a long time. Came back against Marlon Moraes. He, he was ranked number 11. Uh, Moraes was ranked number 3, and he dominated him, got the first-round TKO, or second-round TKO. I'm sorry. No, it was first-round. Yeah, yeah, it was first-round. First-round TKO. Um, hurt him with the jab, just completely was dominating him with the jab. Jab, left hook to, to negate the power right hand. Boom, land the uppercut, jump on him, and got the TKO finish. And then he came back after that fight in May of this year and defeated the former bantamweight champion, Cody Garbrandt. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, it's just a win over Cody Garbrandt. Garbrandt's at the end of his rope. Um, you saw what he did to Rafael Asuncao. This was not the Garbrandt that fought TJ Dillashaw both times. This was not the Garbrandt that fought and got KO'd by Pedro Munoz because he decided to stand and trade and put his balls on the line and get hit with an overhand when he was just winging left and right hooks at him. If, if Garbrandt fought smart against Munoz, he was going to knock him out. If he fought smart against Dillashaw for both fights, but he fought smart for the entirety of those fights, I believe he could have beat TJ Dillashaw. Now, he's going down to 125. He's got a big fight coming up next week against another guy from City Kickboxing in Kaikar, France, dropping down to 125. That's going to be interesting. We'll see how that goes for him. But that's still a huge win over the former champion, the man who looked great against... Um, the man who looked great against Dominic Cruz, who put on the best performance anybody has ever put on against Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt. He was undefeated for a long time. That's not a bad win. That's a great win for Rob. So he's coming off a win over Cody Garbrandt, a knockout victory over Marlon Morice. And you look how good Morice looked before he didn't against Marab Devalishvili. He dropped him multiple times, should have got the finish, but he didn't, you know, and the wrestling and the top pressure and just the pace of Marab is what tired out Marlon Morice. But before that, he had a win over Ricky Simone via decision. Before that, he had a win over Sergio Pettis, who is the current, you know, Bellator 135-pound bantamweight champion who fights this weekend against Kyoji Horiguchi. So that's another fight that goes down this weekend. And my boy Kai Kamaka, who we interviewed on the podcast, also has a fight on that card as well. And then his last loss in his career was at UFC on Fox, Lee versus I, Quinta 2, December 15th of 2018. So Fon hasn't lost in almost three years. He did take some time off, but he's coming off of wins over Sergio Pettis, Ricky Simone, Marlon Marais, and Cody Garbrandt. Now, although, like we said, he dropped to 35. Um, arguably, I think he'd beat Marlon Marais in that fight if he would have beat Marlon. Um, then went on and he fought Peter Yan. Looked great against Peter Yan, even though he lost that fight and, and faded in the late third, the fourth round, you know, it, you know, it's fine. Like he looked great early on. He landed a low kick. He looked like the old, although he was chopping with the low kicks. He was switching stances. When Jan would go southpaw, he'd land that right kick to the body. 
he looked great. You can't you can't discredit that fight. That that's probably one of the most competitive fights Peter Yan has had is in, in his UFC career since he's gone on this bantamweight title run. So for, you know all those coming off wins over Marlon Chito Vera and Pedro Munoz, Rob Font's last two wins, Marlon Moraes, Cody Garbrandt. Those are all great names to have been defeated. And you know Aldo was pegged to fight. Um, Henry Cejudo at UFC two, what was it? What was it? UFC 237. Was it going to be the same card as Nama Yunus versus Andrade? I believe so, but I'm not hundred percent sure. So either way, this fight is going to be played off in one of two areas. If Rob Font can get the jab off early and get the jab off often, it's going to really negate a lot of the striking game of Jose Aldo. He's not going to be able to set up his slips off the center line and be able to set up that left hook to the body, be able to set up those low kicks. It's not going to be easy for him to set him up if Rob is able to keep him behind that long jab. You look at some of the stats for this fight and the reach, Rob Fon has an inch and a half reach advantage. 71 and a half inch reach compared to a 70 inch reach for Aldo along with a one inch height advantage. You know, the jab, that one and a half inch reach is going to play a big factor in this fight because the longer he's able to stay at range with the jab, the more extension he's able to get on that jab, the further away he's going to be able to keep Aldo. And if you can stick that jab in his face and continue to stick that jab in his face and, and you know, start off switch stance to southpaw like he did against Cody early, switch back to orthodox, switch southpaw, left kick to the body, switch southpaw, left high kick like he landed, you know, Switch southpaw with the right uppercut into the straight left hand into the left high kick. You know, he's got a great uppercut. He's able to set up his shots really well, but he's also able to stick behind a jab and stick to a game plan. Aldo can stick to a game plan too, but going into the fourth, going into the fifth round, we saw Rob Font can keep up the cardio. He can keep up the pace. He can keep up the pressure. He didn't look like he was tired at all going into the first time in the championship rounds in the UFC in the fourth and the fifth against Garbrandt. That's going to be a problem because I think Aldo is going to fade if it goes to that fourth round, if it goes to that fifth round. I do think he's got great cardio. I do think he's very fast. I think he's definitely faster than Rob Font. Aldo's definitely going to have the speed advantage. And early on, I think Rob's going to have a tough first round. I think Aldo's going to come out like a house of fire. I think he's going to look to slip the jab and counter with the left hook to the body, slip jab, counter, left hook to the body, left hook up top, right, low kick, pop, 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 pop. One, two, three, low kick. You know, I think he's going to come out and land those combinations. You're going to see Aldo pull back and try to pivot. He's going to pull back and pivot off on that lead left foot to try to pivot, slip, and pivot away from the jab. And it's going to work for the first round. I wouldn't be surprised if we got a clear-cut first round, you know, win for Aldo. Like, he wins the first round and it's clear. Second round, it's going to get a little bit closer. Rob likes to pick up on your timing, and he picks up on your entries with that jab. Aldo had a lot of trouble with the one-twos against Max Holloway, but early on he looked really good. But when Max was able to make those reads, when Max was able to get those punches off, when he was able to figure out where Aldo was going to be and time those counters and stick him with the jab, stick him with the jab, stick him with the one-two, one-two, pull one-two. You know, the one-twos always give Aldo trouble, and it gave him trouble against Peter Yan as well. The jab, the right hand, you know. The shots to the body, those all gave Aldo a lot of trouble. And I think the jab is going to be the winning factor in this fight for Rob Font. But let's go back and talk about more of the stats because, I mean, that's something we always do. I've kind of fallen away from that for this breakdown. So 38 and a half inch leg reach to 40 inch leg reach for 
um, Aldo. So a one and a half inch leg reach advantage for Aldo and a one and a half inch reach advantage for Font. You look at the win percentages, 42% of the wins coming by way of KO for Font, 21% by submission, 37% via decision. You look at the win percentages for Aldo, 57% of wins coming by way of KO, 3% by submission, and 40% by decision. You look at the average fight time, 9 minutes and 6 seconds for Rob Font compared to 13 minutes and 43 seconds for Aldo. So Aldo's been in there. He's been in a lot more five-round fights. The five-round experience, the championship experience, the, the, the competition level throughout his entire career, that is definitely on the side of Jose Aldo. You've got 37 fights for Aldo compared to 23 for Rob Font. That's a 14-fight difference throughout the career. But Aldo, I believe, is only a year older than Font. Aldo's only 32, 33 years old. You know, he's been around the game for so long, but he's got a lot more miles on him than Font does. Even They might be close in age, but he's definitely got a lot more miles. He's got a lot more damage. It's just, you know, it's just something that comes with the territory for how long Aldo's been around. And, you know... You look at the knockdown averages, 0.9 per 15 minutes for uh, Font compared to 0.39 for Aldo. Let's look at more of the significant strikes. So 5.21 significant strikes landed per minute for Rob Font. He picks it up as the fight goes. Once he gets in a rhythm, it's kind of hard to stop him. That's something we've learned with uh, Font. That jab is going to disrupt the rhythm of Aldo throughout this fight. You look at Aldo, it's 3.45 significant strikes landed per minute. So Almost a one and a half inch significant strike landed per minute advantage for Font. 42% significant strike accuracy rate for Font compared to 45% for Aldo. So Aldo's a little bit more accurate, but Font is a little bit more active. Um, you look at strikes absorbed per minute, Font takes a little bit more damage than Aldo does. Aldo's a little bit better defensively. 3.83 um, strikes absorbed per minute to 3.52 for Aldo. Defense, neck and neck, 62% defense for Rob Font compared to 61% defense for Jose Aldo. You look at the grappling, um, 1.2 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to 0.57 for Aldo. So Font shoots more takedowns. He gets more takedowns per 15 minutes. Aldo doesn't look to resort to his grappling. I do think we're going to try to see him use some takedowns and cage positioning and you know controlling the clinch up against the cage against Rob Font to negate some of that reach, negate some of that uh, ability to use that jab that he uses so very well. Takedown accuracy, 36% for Font compared to 56% takedown accuracy for Jose Aldo. 48% um, takedown defense for Font. He doesn't have a great takedown defense. 91% takedown defense for Aldo. Font is going to look to use takedown entries, but I think he's only going to look to use that to get into the clinch and try to tire out Aldo up against the fence, get that blood and that lactic acid into his muscles and try to tire him out for the later rounds. Maybe enter into the takedown attempt, break off with some one-twos, break off with an uppercut, break off with an elbow off the break. He's got good elbows and uh, strikes off the break, and we don't see that that often for Rob Font, but he can definitely strike off the break with some elbows, so look for that against Aldo if they get up against the cage in the over-under position. Aldo's takedown defense, it's pretty nuts. I actually have a picture on my phone if I can pull it up. Um, let's see. Where is it at? I just took it not too long ago. Hold on. Give me a second. Give me a second. 
I know it's on here somewhere. Um, come on, I know I've got this picture on here. Well, I can't seem to find it, but it was a crazy stat. Like, all those stuff, 92 out of like 102 takedowns in his entire UFC career. You know, he's only given out a handful and he's had over, uh, you know, 37 fights, a majority of those happening in the UFC. So it, it's not easy to take down all, though. I don't think Font's going to be able to take him down. But I do think he's going to be able to use those takedown entries and that clinch control to, you know, tire out Aldo, get the get the lactic acid in his muscles. And early on, I think I think Aldo probably wins the first round, two rounds. I do think that. I think Aldo's going to come out hot and heavy. Um, I think he's going to look to rip to the body. I think he's going to look to invest in those low kicks more in this fight than we normally see because of the boxing heavy stance and the, the heavy on the lead leg to use that jab. If he's able to, to destroy the calf of Rob Font early, it's going to take away that jab. If you take away the jab, you take away a lot of the game plan of Rob Font. Font can switch stances. We've seen him do it before. Um, he switches stances a lot more than Aldo. Look for him to do that to kind of offset Aldo's momentum and then step back into orthodox to fire off that jab at full extension. But honestly, I think that Rob Font wins this fight. I think the jab, the one-twos, I think his patience and his ability to stick to a game plan for four rounds, five rounds, is going to take over. I think he's going to be able to weather the storm of Aldo early. When it gets into the late second, into the third round, that jab's going to start working more. Once he starts landing that jab at will and Aldo can't get away from it, he's going to piece him up. He's going to land the one-two on the feet at full extension. He's going to hurt him. And um, I think we're actually going to get a TKO finish for Font here. I know a lot of people think that it's going to go to a decision. I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm actually going to go with a fourth-round TKO win for Rob Font over Jose Aldo. I think early, like I said, Aldo's going to look good. He's going to rip to the body. He's going to have some good, you know, combinations, and he's going to look great. But the longer the fight goes, that jab's going to start working, the distance, and the Rob's going to start picking up the pace. He's going to start making the reads on Aldo, encountering him very well. And the, the head movement and the pullback ability and the pivoting of Aldo is going to move him into combinations. I think he's going to Look to guard up. Rob's going to come up with that uppercut up the middle. You know, the pullback uppercut. You know, we've seen his partner, his training partner, Kelvin Cater, do it against Shane Burgos. I think we're going to see him look to use that uppercut if Aldo does look to slip and roll out of the way. Look for him to slip off the jab, step back, measure with the lead hand, fire that uppercut. He's going to hurt him with the one-two, land some punches up against the cage, drop him, and get the TKO. So my pick is Rob Font to defeat Jose Aldo be a fourth round TKO. All right, guys, that's going to be it for my preview and predictions for UFC Vegas 44. I cannot wait for these for the fights this weekend. The co-main and the main event is one of the best co-main and main event lineups for a fight night we've ever had. Two of the best striking matchups and two of the best fights in the UFC and two of the best fights of the year. Font versus Aldo, Fizia versus Riddell. Make sure to tune in and do not miss this fight. You can check out the Touch Em Up podcast anywhere you get your audio podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, and many more. You can make some donations via PayPal. 
Um, I believe I have the PayPal address linked in the description of the podcast. If you go back and look, you can also find fighter breakdowns, fight studies. I just did a fighter, um, a post-fight study of Jan versus Sandhagen. You can find that on my YouTube channel. Just search exactly what you did to find this podcast. Touch Em Up Podcast is the name of the YouTube channel. There's a Sandhagen versus Jan breakdown. There's um, a Sean Brady breakdown. There's a Hamzat Chemaev breakdown, a Peter Yan breakdown I did years ago, a Kelvin Cater breakdown, a Corey Sandhagen breakdown. Um, I'm working on a Rose Nami Yunus fighter breakdown. I have some of my podcast episodes up there, some of the interviews I've done on my podcast. Definitely go out of your way to support the Touch Em Up podcast. Listen to some of my interviews. Get this out to anybody you know who's fans of mixed martial arts or professional wrestling. You know, you get them out to your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. Anybody you know who's a fan of mixed martial arts, point them in the direction of one of the most technical and breakdown-heavy mixed martial arts podcasts in the in the world, in my opinion, in the Touch Em Up podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Thank you for all the support, guys.